The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. We're studying the Sermon on the Mount. Been at it for a number of weeks now. Into Matthew chapter 6, we get a rather longer passage than some of the ones we've dealt with now. Chapter 6 has been talking about a disciple's practices, reminding you the Sermon on the Mount is not a set of instructions on how to become a Christian, but rather it describes what the life of one who is a Christian, who is a new creation in Christ and the Holy Spirit ought to act like and ought to look like what he ought to be doing and saying and thinking. So we were led through the topics of worship in the beginning of 6, how to give, how to pray. And now once again we come back to a very practical subject of behavior, how we regard the material things that we own or say that we own being reminded that we really don't own them for very long. Listen to Jesus speaking in Matthew 6, beginning at 19 through 24. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness! No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. This is the Word of God. I had an old gospel song in my head this week. I'm sure some of you sang it like I did in church as a boy in a bygone era. The song goes, I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather have him than have riches untold. I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world affords today. Maybe you say, Pastor, why don't you choose that song? Well, first of all, it's not in our hymnal, but that doesn't pro prohibit us from singing it. But there might be a secondary reason why I wouldn't choose it necessarily today, because I don't want you to perjure yourself. And it could very easily be that as Christians, if we're singing words that say, I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world affords, we're going to have to be quiet for a minute and think, do I really mean what I just said? You really rather have Jesus than anything? The sinful treachery of our own minds 
takes money and material things and turns them into objects with an obsessive way of putting a hold upon us. They get their claws in us. And they become idols before which we worship when we don't even realize that has happened to us. In our text this morning, Jesus asks us to reevaluate what the things in our lives do to us in terms of controlling us, motivating us, curbing uh, things that become really unnatural desires. We need to reevaluate this. Verses 19 to 24 here have three couplets that we want to look at, three rather natural points. The first is asking us to recognize that there are two opposing treasures. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And very obviously, Jesus was saying your heart can be turned in either one of two very different directions based on what you regard as treasure. And he lays out the principle that everything we call treasure in the present material world is in some manner or other corruptible and temporary. We end up directing our lives by and longing for things that have very little shelf life. And yet we can give up everything sometimes to try to possess them. Now make it very clear, Jesus was not a socialist. He believed in private property ownership. He believed in a workman being worthy of good wages. He certainly approved of prudent saving. Had there been life insurance or property insurance in his time, which I think there was not, he would have favored that. He would have favored saving for your retirement, providing as you were able for relatives or parents perhaps who, who have needs laid in their life. But he sees the seduction and the difficulties posed by many things, finances and riches and possessions. And there's a lot of teaching about this in the Word of God. The earthly treasures he's warning us about could have taken on many different forms. How about a 65-inch flat screen? I won't ask for a show of hands how many have them. Mine's smaller, so I'm okay. But I've noticed you can't go into Costco or any of the big appliance stores now where the first thing they smack you in the face as soon as you walk in is the largest possible screen TV. And the implication is, why in the world do you have a smaller one? And you start thinking about, hmm, better get out the measuring tape and see if I could fit a 65-incher in my living room. Whatever it might be, greater investments for more security in the future, a better car, a better house, these things can easily come to dominate our thinking. Jesus spoke against disciples allowing any material thing to become your greatest imaginable good so that you prize that above anything else. And you pursue the fantasy that if you only had it, it would bring you great satisfaction. The amazing thing is, it doesn't. And we discover this over and over so many ways. My wife and I had the opportunity last year to move to smaller quarters deliberately. We chose to do that, downscaling our lives. It was astonishing 
the things that ended up at our curb. I think I shared some things last year about the pickers who showed up at our house every week feasting on all the good things we put at the curb because we just don't want to be bothered with a lawn sale or a yard sale. And it was real interesting doing that sorting. Things that had sat in our basement for 15 years, they had not been used. In some cases, boxes hadn't been opened since the move before that. And yet, had I not been forced because of less space at the next place, uh, they would have sat there still, and it would be there 20 years from now, I suppose, because something in my brain said, why, that belonged to Aunt Tilly. I couldn't give that away. Why, that end table was my grandfather's. I've never used it, but I dare not throw it out. And all kinds of head games go on with our possessions that we think we need. And some of that is certainly harmless, but some of it is not so harmless. And Jesus stressed here that we would realize the short, durable life of most of the possessions we have, including our bank accounts. What's wrong with things? They rust. They get moldy. The moths eat holes in them. Automobiles are a great illustration. What a central place they can tend to play in our lives because they're costly. They're expensive. And we're enticed all the time by advertising that tells us, well, we really need the brand new model with all of its great features. I don't have a backup camera. I better get one with a backup camera. I don't have leather seats. I don't have electric seats that warm themselves. Boy, let me tell you, that's a great one, though. (laughs) Once you've had warming seats, you will not easily give them up. I, I confess to being seduced there. But cars, look what they do to us. They entice us. And, you know, we pay, if you buy it from a dealer, if you buy a brand new one, you know what happens. You drive off the lot and you've gone two blocks, and if the transmission fell out, too bad. Uh, Maybe you're covered, maybe you're not. I guess you're covered if the transmission falls out. But the point is, the car loses value the minute it goes off the dealer's lot. You know that. Cars make devious gods. They cost thousands to insure. They cost many hundreds to maintain. All that stainless steel and shiny glass and hand-sewn leather, supposedly. I I picture thousands of little elves who actually do the sewing of the leather. But, uh, you know, all of that. We value, we, we give such a portion of our income for it. And economists would class cars under what they call durable goods. That's a lie. They're not durable. They'll be at some landfill in 25 years for certain. Just about every car on the road is not going to be on the road in 25 years. Very few. If it's a classic or something, somebody will preserve it. But most of the cars you drive will be gone. They'll rust away. And you'll have nothing for what you spent on it. One minute after death, you will have nothing. Job reiterates that truth. Naked we came from our mother's womb, and naked we will return. What is treasure in heaven that Jesus mentions here that we're supposed to prize in place of treasure on earth? You say, if it isn't something that can be given a dollar value and that actually appreciates, why is it so superior? Well, the implication of Scripture is that treasure in heaven begins with the Lord Jesus Christ himself. 
who is our greatest treasure. Philippians 3.8 says, compared to knowing him as your Lord and Savior, everything comparatively is rubbish, trash. Salvation in the name of Jesus Christ is our foremost treasure. And the Bible says whoever believes in the Lord Jesus Christ and receives and rests in his great work of salvation in our place has something that First Peter 1 calls an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, but is kept, reserved, preserved in heaven for you. That's a durable good, my friends, far differently than any car or house or other possession. Now, Matthew 6 does not imply that we're able to purchase salvation by redirecting our money in a certain way. Salvation isn't what's in view here. Certainly, it is the ultimate goal. But once you possess it, we're talking here about how do people behave who do possess that assured goal of eternal salvation. What do they do with their money and their attitudes and their spending and their saving that is different? Luke 16 verse 9 has an injunction from Jesus again, and it sometimes gives people pause to hear him speak this way. He said, make friends by means of worldly wealth so when it is gone, they might welcome you into heavenly dwellings. That's a little bit of an odd statement, isn't it? Jesus is almost saying there's a commercial attitude that's important to your Christian discipleship, that you would use possessions, money that's in your hands, even physical things, to somehow help other people, whatever that might be, making the gospel known to them, assisting them when they're impoverished, coming alongside them in some time of crisis. Make friends by means of your worldly wealth so they might welcome you into heavenly dwellings. I always call that the heavenly welcoming committee. The idea that there would be people, if we want to translate that figure, that would welcome us into eternity saying, hey, you were somebody who helped sponsor that Bible translation that let me hear and understand the good news of Christ for the first time. You were somebody who sent those missionaries who had agricultural advice and not only taught us the way of God and the way of Christ, but helped us drill a well so we had healthy, clean water in our village. You were somebody who stood up, as Bob Dunn was speaking about, and raised a voice against the pro-abortion forces in your community, that people would literally see that because of Christ, we acted in such a way that their lives and their eternal state was affected. Somebody from Zambia or Ethiopia or Mexico or China you've never known is being assisted by the way you use your money, your giving, for missions through a place like Westminster Presbyterian Church. I'll never see that person on this earth. But eternity is actually moved by that investment is the implication Jesus is making here. You're making an imperishable investment. Luke 12, 33 has Jesus saying this, sell your possessions, give to the poor, provide purses for yourselves that do not wear out a treasure in heaven where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. 
There are a lot of non-monetary ways that you can invest with treasure in heaven. I think of a mom or dad giving their years devotedly, looking for teachable moments with their children to mold a child's mind and, and thinking, to choose godly values. Time spent in worship, time spent in the Word of God, time spent in prayer. These are all investments in eternity. The great commentator Matthew Henry once wrote this. He said, Things of this world are not the best things ever designed for our happiness, for if they were, God would not have granted so much of this world's wealth to his worst enemies and so much of this world's troubles to his best friends. God is placing treasure in heaven in your life in many ways for you to make choices and invest and seek him and help others to seek him. But secondly, and you might question perhaps the connection. Maybe you say, well, it seems like the thought stops here at verse 21. Why did you go on and read right through 22 to 24? We do think these several passages are linked, perhaps loosely, but definitely linked. The eye is the lamp of the body. It seems to me he's saying there are not only two treasures, but there are two ways of seeing things, two different worldviews, if you will. In verses 22 and 23, Jesus said, Your eyes are like windows through which light is shed upon your thinking and your values and thus your actions. Our human eyes either assist a worldview that is in accord with facts or they give us a clouded and distracted and muddy vision of what the world is really doing and what it's all about. I think of Hebrews 11 that tells of people of faith in days of old who walked through this life, and it says they walked as seeing him who is invisible. That's certainly a memorable phrase. The idea that they went through this life with an extra kind of vision. You know, Superman used to be able to look and see things that were inside a lead wall or a concrete vault or something. It's as if a Christian looks at the world and sees different things. We see what's out there way on the horizon, the goals that God puts before us. I know that if you're a farmer and you're plowing a furrow, I learned long years ago that you put the nose of the tractor on some tree or some fence post or some object on the far horizon and hold it on that and you'll plow a straight furrow. That's what we're talking about here, seeing him who is invisible, putting our attention and our goals aimed at the far horizon of eternity. Because Jesus Christ knew how easily we would be distracted by things, by a squirrel or a rabbit running around in the field. And if we swerve off to go with the the squirrel or the rabbit, we're going to lose the straight furrow for sure. If we are distracted by every form of material possession and thing that places itself before us and we desire it, we're going to have a wobbly way through life. I saw an illustration related to this. This isn't original to me, but I think it it speaks very well. Someone said, imagine yourself living in a southern city like, let's say, Charleston, South Carolina, during the Civil War. It's 1864, the year before the end of the Civil War. Your family lives in Charleston, that beautiful city, and you happen to be from Pennsylvania. 
you were caught in Charleston as the war began and it hasn't been safe for you to go north where you really belong, but your roots are in Pittsburgh, let's say. Now here you are, you've, you've been able to be successful and you have a rather modest but, but good nest egg in southern banks, the bank of, <clears throat> let's say the first bank of Charleston. And you're watching the tide of things and you know the war is going against the south and the south is probably going to lose the war. And you're thinking to yourself, what's going to happen when my bank account in the first bank of Charleston, when I try to redeem that money at the end of the war? It's going to be Confederate currency. And it's largely going to be worthless when the war ends. I'm certain there were smart people who knew this. And think of that. Here are people that have knowledge that they have something of value that could easily be turned valueless. They want to find some way to take that Confederate money out, invest it in something tangible like land or some hard goods, something durable that's going to rise in price when the war ends. And instead of losing everything on Confederate money, they'll actually at least recover their investment or perhaps even improve it. Well, that's really what the Christian is all about. Here we are dealing largely in Confederate money with the things our society dangles before us. They're of very temporary value, very questionable value. You ride the Dow Jones average. If you own stocks, you look, we look at the end of most days. We don't get too excited unless it loses six or 700 points in a day. But uh, you say, what did the Dow Jones industrial average do today? Is it way up or way down? But you can't jump and change your whole approach based on one day or one week or one month. You need a long-term strategy. Any investor will tell you that. Well, we know that a lot of the things we have are going to change in the sense that the moment I die, they're not going to be mine anymore. Or if Christ returns while I'm alive, none of that stuff is going to matter anyway. So what is it invested in with the long view the view of eternal things. Have my eyes seen reality as it is and adopted a worldview that includes God's perspective, not just the perspective of the Dow Jones average or my own counting up my savings? Well, thirdly here, our text resolves on this conclusion. There are two masters, two treasuries, two ways of seeing, two masters. And you will either serve Christ as master or you will be bowing to the physical world of money, status, success, physical comforts. You can't say, I will serve them both equally. One will and must dominate. It's interesting that the more modern Bible translations haven't picked up and used a word that the King James translators used to describe all of this physical cash and possessions. It's a word, mammon. If you have a King James Bible, you see that in the text there. You cannot serve God and mammon. It's a strange word. We think it's the name of a Babylonian god who was a god who lured people to their success until success devoured them. In that sense, it's very interesting. Mammon includes more than just cash. It's everything that's false that makes promises that I will be your fulfillment, I will reward you, but it doesn't reward. It corrupts and it even destroys. 
covetousness, wanting mammon and more and more of it, tends to claim our heart's allegiance. Something that we want to own has that strange effect that it ends up owning us. And it doesn't have to be something expensive either. It doesn't have to be a house that's too much for you to really afford or a car that you can barely make the payments on. You, you can be owned by things that are material things that are actually practically worthless. You see this with people whose lives, you walk in their home and they've got pathways through the stuff, through the piles of paper and the cardboard boxes of memorabilia and old clothes 60 or 70 years out of fashion, and they can't let those worthless things go. And they die, and somebody comes with a big truck to clean their house out, all the things that they simply couldn't let go of because those things had some claims of ownership upon them. Now, the Bible doesn't say being rich is an evil thing. Doing well with your investments, being successful, getting a good income, these are good things, morally neutral. It's what you do with the things that you have that becomes a moral issue. And you ask yourself, well, I want a better salary. Of course, that's an honorable thing if you're going to use it right. I want a better house. Perhaps you need it. Perhaps you don't. A newsman once asked John D. Rockefeller, who in a previous century was the richest man alive. I don't know who the richest man alive is right now. Jeff Bezos or somebody. I'm, I'm not sure. It's not Bill Gates anymore. But John D. Rockefeller was it in his day. And a newsman said to him once, Mr. Rockefeller, how much money should we consider to be enough? And Rockefeller's famous reply was, just one dollar more. In other words, you'd never stop wanting it. You'd always need more. He had more than anybody knew what to do with. And he said, I could use one dollar more. Our Savior's conclusion is this. No man can serve the mastery of money and possessions and the Lord his God. He will love one and hate the other inevitably. The, the one is going to exercise a tyranny over him. The other will enlist him in its service, but it will not be a tyrannical service. There's a commentator, Frederick Bruner, who said this about the passage. He said, The decision of faith in, to follow Christ in faith is an either-or decision that tolerates no double-dipping, no side glances over to see what the goddess of success is saying. And he said, You cannot burn incense at two altars because it's impossible to have two lords. Remember, the first commandment of God in the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20 is what? You shall have no other God in my presence. No other God in my presence. We have to choose our master, and we choose it every day. We choose it regularly. Don't think, well, I dedicated my life to Christ when I was 10 years old. Well, that's great. Is your life dedicated to Christ today, now that you're 29 or 79 or whatever? We're choosing all the time who our master is. For instance, you might have decided a long time ago to adopt the biblical standard of 10% tithing to guide your giving, not because it's a hard legislative threat to God that God says, I, I don't like people who don't tithe. 
but he gives us that standard. And there it is, Old Testament and New as well. And you found that tithing is a balanced way to keep the Lord's portion of your income in control alongside your portion. But now what happens when you lose your job? And now you're eking it out on unemployment insurance, and you're thinking to yourself, hmm, times are tough. I sure haven't had the breakthrough yet that's gotten me that new job. Do I tithe my unemployment check? Well, I don't intend to lay down the law for you on that particular question, but it almost seems to me that what you do with your giving while you're getting the unemployment check might even be more important than what you're doing with your giving when the money is more plentiful and the salary's coming in. I was quite inspired by the life testimony of a new couple to our church recently. They came through our new member class. Husband and wife had been living for quite a while in the metro New York area, actually northern New Jersey, but metro New York was really the, cir- the economic circle of their lives. And one was an attorney, and the other one had a marketing master's degree. Both were equipped to make very good livings and did so for quite a while. But then things were interrupted a little bit, and they had to reevaluate and said, wow, we're living in metro New York where a teeny little house that doesn't even have a side yard, that if you throw a tennis ball, it bounces off the neighbor's house right away, teeny little house and taxes of $13,000 a year. Is this really how we want to live in this rat race of everything being so highly priced? And they said, you know, we'd really like to be able for one of us to be free so we could home educate our children. Long and short, these folks knew Lancaster County and said, we could operate a small business and do it in Lancaster County, and we wouldn't both have to work in high-pressure, nonstop, 60-hour-a-week jobs and we could live differently and follow the values that the Lord is calling us to have for our families. They did that. They run a business here. They said, we're not getting rich, but it's amazing how God has blessed and provided, and we're able to do the things in our family that make us feel for sure that we're walking the way the Lord wants us to walk. To me, that's choosing what master you're going to serve serving what they feel the Lord told them was right for their family. I'm not going to tell you everybody has to homeschool, but it was what they wanted and what they sought before the Lord, and they gave up something material, the ability to maybe drive a newer car or have a bigger house and work, 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 work all the time just to make it happen. You see, Christ calls us to choices that are going to make us do an about-face sometimes, from the policies and expectations of affluency in American life. Somebody would say, what, you have a law degree, you're not using it? Well, I'm I'm following a different call of a different master. I believe to follow Christ in these things, we need to be equally concerned about things that we would give away for his kingdom as we are concerned about the things that we keep for ourselves. Worldly riches tend to make totalitarian demands on us. God makes stiff demands as well. But there's a slavery of following him as Lord that is a sweet slavery. It's not the slavery of putting us under the gun of financial pressures all the time. 
In summary, Jesus invited disciples to choose the right treasury, to choose the correct worldview of spiritual goals versus material, and to bow before the one and only benevolent Lord who wants their good in eternal things. Our discipleship to Christ, I think, boils down to this well-known bottom line. He's no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And our Father, I pray that you'd help us to examine this. It applies differently to each of us in our different stations in life. May we think hard and clearly about the heavenly treasury of principles to order our lives, about the right goals or worldview, and about the right master whom we will serve. May that be you and you alone, we ask for Jesus' sake. Amen.